So starting at verse 1 in chapter 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tafel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Oreb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was proclaimed, um, this was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and Idre had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. So now we're in verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord, your God, carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord, your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in a cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it. And I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, 
turned round and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormeh. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning, everybody. Last week, um, we began our time in Deuteronomy 32 by thinking about some national anthems, if you uh, were with us then. Uh, today, we're going to begin uh, with some 1980s new wave pop. Uh, I was listening to this week uh, to the song Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. Some of you might know it if you have a, a certain vintage. And it struck me that it was eerily relevant to today's passage in Deuteronomy 1 to 3. You may know the song. It's not so much sung as sort of shouted wildly. And the lyrics begin like this. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? It's a song you see about drifting through life. Time passes, you just sort of muddle along with your life. You're never really conscious about making any clear decisions or deciding on a clear direction for your life. You just find yourself one day living a life with a certain shape and a certain settled quality, and you think, how did I get here? Later in the song, the, uh, the, the life that the singer is describing seems to fall apart. Again, without really realizing how or why, terrible mistakes are made, and the narrator loses his beautiful house and his beautiful wife, and he says, and you may ask yourself, where is that large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. And you may say to yourself, what have I done? Well, in these opening chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to answer these two questions for the people of Israel. How did we get here? And what have we done? Because he's going to show them a God's eye view of their recent history. He's going to show them how they got to the brink of entering the promised land of Canaan. In verse 1, we're told that they're standing on the eastern border of the land, about to go in and take possession of it. But he's also going to show them what they have done, the terrible mistakes they've made in the past. We get a hint of that mistake in verses 2 and 3. Look at that with me. <clears throat> verse 2, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. It only takes 11 days to walk from Horeb, which is another word for Mount Sinai, 
uh, where the people stood and received the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is 11 days to get from there to Kadesh Barnea, a point right on the edge of the southern border of the Promised Land. That's the quickest, easiest route to Canaan, 11 days. And yet here we are, on the eastern border, 40 years later. How did we get here and what have we done? What on earth happened to make an 11-day journey take four decades? Well, that's what we'll see Moses explain as he recaps for the people their own recent history. So before we move from exegeting a 40-year-old pop song to a 4,000-year-old bit of scripture, which we'll see is far more relevant and interesting, one more word from Talking Heads. The song ends with the refrain, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. In the Talking Heads song, they see the cycle repeated. People drifting through life, sleepwalking into catastrophic failures, losing it all with no hope. But we'll see as we go along that that does not need to be our story. There is hope for us. So let's listen to Moses' words as first we see the good land promised. In verse 6, Moses rewinds us to the time when God's people stood at the, fo- the foot of Mount Horeb slash Sinai. Recall um, what had, had happened before then. God had made a promise to an obscure Mesopotamian chap called Abraham. He made a solemn covenant with him to bless him and his descendants and to bring them into a promised land, a good land, where his descendants could live in peace and safety. Through various twists and turns, Abraham's grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then numbering about 70 people, found themselves not in the promised land, but in Egypt. There they grew rapidly, but they fell foul of the Pharaoh who enslaved them and made their lives utterly miserable. But God sent plagues to break Pharaoh's hold on his people, and he raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, which miraculously parted for them, and to Mount Horeb to receive the Ten Commandments. And so at Horeb, God has made a covenant with his people. He's given them good laws to obey and promised to be with them and to be their gods, and the people have promised and agreed to be his people. And so now Moses recalls the time when they were told to leave Horeb and head north to the promised land. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I've given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. See, everything in these verses tell us that this promised land is going to be very, very good indeed. We see in verses 6 to 7 that it's a big land, it's a large, expansive land. From the Negev Desert in the south to the border of Lebanon in the north, from the Mediterranean Sea in the west to the Euphrates in the east. This growing people are given a land in which they can expand and multiply. The extent of the land that Moses describes here is actually greater than anything they ever managed to secure for reasons that will become clear later. But it's a broad and expansive place to live. And verse 8 tells us that this land is a gift. The word gift or given or gave is, is the most common word, almost the most common word in this entire three chapters. God has graciously prepared and gift-wrapped this land for the people to open and to enjoy. This is the fulfillment of a promise he'd made hundreds of years before. The Most High, 
who we met last week, who sets the borders of every nation, has reserved this space for his own people, his own inheritance. This is a secure land, a special land, because it's given by the God of the whole universe. And it's not just the land itself that's good. God has taken pains to ensure that life in the land is going to be good. That's, I think, the point of verses 9 to 18. Moses recalls that at one point he had a problem leading this people, a very nice problem to have. Look at verse 9 with me. At that time I said to you, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. See, God has begun to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, and there's even more to come. But Moses can't be the sole leader of these people. That's just not going to work. It's far too much for one man to bear, so he does a very wise thing. He delegates his role to other leaders, and there is apparently no problem finding wise, understanding, and respected men in every single tribe. And these people are put in charge of different groups of people and a sort of hierarchy of leadership develops, which makes everything manageable, ensures that everyone has their concerns addressed and their voices heard, and crucially, ensures that justice is done. And what justice? Look at verse 16. I charge your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is uh, between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien, that by the way, that means a foreigner, not a, an alien. Okay, good. Um, do not show partiality in judging here, both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I'll hear it. Do you see the justice there in verse 16? There is no preferential treatment for native-born Israelites over foreigners. In verse 17, there's no preferential treatment of the rich over the poor. There's no bullying or bribery or miscarriages of justice to be tolerated. Why? Because verse 17, judgment belongs to God. God shows no partiality or favoritism. He is perfectly just and fair. And so Moses sets up a system which reflects and which mediates that justice of God. And so do you see what God is promising? He says, okay, let's go. Let's go from this mountain. Let's go to the land. It's going to be a good land. It's a big land. It's a given land. And it's a land where justice will be done. And there's more, because as they get to the very doorstep of that land, we learn that it's a fruitful land. The people have the idea of sending out spies in verse 22, before they go up to the land, and Moses agrees, that's a, that's a good idea. Uh, back in Numbers, when the first-hand report of this was written, it gets God's seal of approval as well. Even though this is all God's gift and all God's initiative, there's nothing wrong with a bit of worldly wisdom, a bit of planning and strategizing to work out the best way of getting things done. And the spies bring back a fantastic report, verse 25. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Even today, grapes from this area, from the land of Hebron, are famous for their weight and their juiciness. I spent probably too long looking at Google images on the, this week, salivating, eating the sort of sour little things that we get in supermarkets. Anyway, so no wonder... 
Given all that, given how good the land is, Moses tells them not to be afraid in verse 21. He says to verse 21, See, the Lord God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. See, God is going to give them this land, this good, expansive, fruitful land where justice will be done. There's no need to be afraid, no need to be discouraged. They just need to trust God. Yes, they do need to take action. They have to go up and fight the people they find already in the land. But ultimately, Moses is calling for faith in action. If they obey, they will succeed, not because they're strong, not because they are militarily skilled, far from it. Rather, their success will be down to the covenant commitment of the Lord. He calls for their trust and their obedience to the covenant he's made to them. And if they trust him, he has promised to act with power and might on their behalf. God has promised them a good land. And so now is the time that they're to go up and take it. But as Moses reminds them to their shame, that's not what happened. Instead, the good God was rejected. I wonder if you've ever heard it said, if only I had evidence, I would believe in God. If only God would make himself clear to me, here and now, in an unambiguous way, then I'd believe. Perhaps that's where you are today, if you're a guest here with us, and that's where you are. I just need a bit more evidence, and then I'd believe. We'll just bear that in mind as we read the next few verses. Um, Look at verse 26 with me. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your gods. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say, the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. The people rebel. The word rebel is almost a technical term for the breaking of a covenant, a failure to meet the obligations laid on them by God at Horeb. They've not responded in active faith and obedience, but there's something much more going on here than a formal breaking of a commandment. This is a rejection of the character of God. What do they say about the Lord? Verse 27, the Lord hates us. What an astonishing thing to say about the God who delivered them out of Egypt, who promised to give them a good land, a land which they had seen with their own eyes is good. You see, the Lord wanted to give them the land because of his covenant love for them. The people have decided that he actually wants to give them to their enemies because of his hatred for them. The Lord wants to bless them and give them life. They think that he wants to curse them and put them to death. How have they come to that conclusion? Well, notice the way they've interpreted the evidence. The spies have come back and said that the current inhabitants of the land are strong, and their cities are well fortified. And that has caused something of a wobble among the Israelites. They're they're scared, they're doubtful. But instead of airing those doubts with Moses or asking for God's help, what do they do? Verse 27, they retreat to their tents, and they grumble, and they discuss it among themselves, and they convince themselves that the evidence only points in one direction, that there is no way that they could beat these giants in their castles. 
And so they begin to grumble more, they complain to each other, and the hostile temperature increases until the grumbling erupts in out-and-out rebellion. They say to Moses, verse 28, where can we go? And we could translate that, where is this place that we're going? What, what have you brought us to? Why have you brought us here? What are you playing at? Bringing us here to this fortress peopled by supermen. This is ridiculous. We haven't got a chance. Do you see what they're doing? They're looking at the evidence that the spies have brought them and they are listening to their fears. They're listening to their own hearts. They're listening to the report of the spies. And did you notice in verse 28, they blame their rebellion on them. It's their fault. They made us lose hearts. Listening to the grumblings and whingings of naysayers in their little private groups in their tents. And they come to the only logical conclusion. A malicious God has deliberately brought them to an impossible battle in order to make them suffer. But there is more than one way to read the evidence. The people are large, say the spies. Well, what would you expect of people living in a fruitful and abundant land where people can eat well and grow strong? The cities are fortified, say the spies. Well, as Moses will say later on, those cities are the ones that God has prepared for you to live in. He has pre-packaged this land with fortresses for your safety and security. And what about the fact that there are fierce enemies in the land? Well, says Moses next, you've got evidence which speaks to that too. Verse 29. And I said to you, don't be terrified, don't be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Moses says, consider the evidence of the past. God has defeated nations much larger and scarier than these guys. He has carried you as a father, carries his young son through difficult terrain. This is just another opportunity for him to show his power and his might. And as verse 33 says, the spies are not the only people who've gone before them to find out the way they should go. God has been doing that. God has been going before them, leading them by easy stages all the way here, giving them good places to camp guiding them through the wilderness. He can get them in. He can get them there. He's done it before. You see, the people look at the evidence and they conclude that right now, as verse 32 says, they can't trust this God. The evidence, they would say, has led them to fear men and reject God. But as Moses exposes their hearts, we realize it's actually the other way around. Their fear of men and their distrust of God has led them to skew and reject the evidence of their own eyes. If they would only listen to the words of Moses and believe them, if they would fear God more than they feared men, they would see there is ample evidence in the word of God, in the history of his dealings with his people, even in the very report of the spies that has freaked them out, to give them good grounds to trust him and to obey. Jesus once told a parable about a rich man in hell who wanted another man, someone who was in heaven, to go back to his brothers who were still alive and appear to them and warn them to trust in God. But in the parable, he gets this reply. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, God's trustworthy word gives all the evidence that's needed. But if the people have already decided against God in their hearts... 
if they're more used to listening to fears and listening to grumbling and listening to skeptical voices, all the evidence in the world won't convince them. So in response to this covenant rebellion, God pronounces his judgment in verse 35 and onwards. This whole generation, except Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies who, who did trust God and, and urged the people to do the same. You can read the account in Numbers 14 to see that. All the rest of them are going to die in the desert. They will not enter the promised land. They've forsaken the covenant which God called them to. And so they will not receive the blessings of that covenant. Even Moses is included in that punishment in verse 37. Although he is guiltless at Kadesh Barnea, he's done nothing wrong at this point, yet because he is the leader of this people, he shares in their guilt. And so that entire generation of people are going to die. And as God says in verse 39, look at that with me, verse 39, the little ones that you said will be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. There's a great irony here. In Numbers, we're told that the people would not enter the land because they feared for their children. Seems like a bit of an excuse, frankly. But what they said was, no, we can't go up there. Our kids will die. We can't possibly go up there. In verse 39, Moses tells them that those very same children who don't share in the guilt of their parents because they're not yet old enough to take responsibility for their actions, that they're the only ones who will enter the land. God is going to take care of them much better than they can. So God calls them to turn and go. But the rebellion doesn't even end there. Look at verse 41. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons thinking it would be easy to go into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you wouldn't listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. See, the people acknowledge that they've sinned, and they say to God, sorry, we've changed our minds. We'll do it. We'll go up now. But do you see what's changed? Before, when God had said to them, I will be with you, don't be afraid, the people said, no, it's too hard, we're all going to die. Now God says to them, I'm not going to be with you, you should definitely be afraid, and the people think, verse 41, that this is going to be easy. See, this looks a bit like repentance. It looks from the outside that the people are now starting to obey God's command at last. But they're still not listening to him. And in their hearts, they are doing precisely the same as they did before. Arrogantly disregarding the word of the Lord and stubbornly reinterpreting the evidence to please their own hearts. When they were afraid of the battle, they believed that everything would be too hard and God couldn't defeat their enemies. When they were afraid of God's judgment in the desert, they came to believe, oh, we don't need God at all, this will be easy. You see, they're listening to themselves, they're listening to their own fears, and in a stunning reversal, the people who would not listen to God find that after this second rebellion, verse 45, he's not going to listen to them. So notice two lessons clearly with me from this episode. First, we are not neutral when it comes to evidence for God. We'd like to believe that, wouldn't we? 
We'd like to believe that we are neutral, rational, objective people who go through life making clear-cut, rational decisions based on the best evidence possible. But it wasn't true in the time of the Israelites, and it isn't true today. Our hearts, our fears, our biases will determine who we listen to and what we believe. And we should be very aware that all of us naturally are biased against the God who made us. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to do things that are difficult or uncomfortable. We don't want to listen to a God who will critique us and confront us, even if that would result in great good and blessing for us. And that means we are liable to drift through life, to drift away from God, to make the terrible mistake of turning away from God and his word without even really realizing we're doing it because of the fear and distrust and stubbornness and arrogance of our hearts. We need to know that we're capable of that. The second lesson we need to learn is that the same fearful, faithless, stubborn, arrogant heart can produce what look like diametrically opposite responses. It can produce outright rebellion, a complete refusal to obey God or listen to him, rebellion to his commands, grumbling and skepticism and disobedience. But it can also produce what looks like obedience. A formal, even religious obedience that could even look somewhat morally courageous like that of the Israelites as they try to storm into the promised land without God. But both stem from a refusal to listen to the word of God, to humble ourselves before it, to trust him rather than to listen to the fears and thoughts and desires of our own hearts. Well, in 2 verse 1, They are cast out back to the desert. In a reversal of the exodus, they're sent back towards the Red Sea where it all began. And so we think, well, that must be it, mustn't it? Surely that's that's one strike too many. The people have been continually rebellious from the very beginning, and now they've fallen at the last hurdle twice. They've broken the covenant with God countless times. How can it still stand? yeah, that's not the end of the story. God is going to do something remarkable. We're going to see in the next chapter and a half, good faith rebuilt. Now, I'll be honest, it is quite easy to get a bit bewildered of chapters two and three. If you've read ahead in the week, uh, you'll see there's a vast array of names and peoples and lands, all of which seem to end with ites, um, but it follows a recurring pattern. First, after wandering seemingly aimlessly for a while in verse one, in verses two and three of chapter two, God tells Moses it's time to head back north, to head back towards the promised land. But they're going to take a different route this time. They're going to go through five different lands, people by five different groups of people. And this is no random travel itinerary. As they go through these lands, God is going to teach them a lesson they need to know. He's going to slowly, patiently rebuild their trust in him. We'll look at these lands in two groups. Uh, The first three are the people of Esau who live in Seir. We meet them in verse 4. The people of Moab who live in the land of Ar, verse 9. I think you'll find that is pronounced correctly. And the people of Ammon who live north of Ar in their own uh, territory, verse 19. Uh, And if you're thinking, what? There's a map. I'll show you a map. Uh, There's a map on the screen to show you this. So here is the, the roots of uh, the Israelites. They start at Kadesh Barnea. They go sort of west, and then they sort of meander south. That takes a long time. And then they're told to go north. See that uptick at the bottom? From the Red Sea, they're going north. And they're going first through Edom, then through Moab, and then through Ammon. Okay? So that's where they're going first. 
Now, there are lots of details here. We can't go through all of them. But notice that uh, the same thing happens in each of these lands. First, we are explicitly told that the people are not to attack these groups. So look at verse 5 as an example for that. Chapter 2, verse 5. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I've given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. God says the same thing about the Moabites in verse 9 and the Ammonites in verse 19. They can pass through these lands. They can buy food and water from them if they need to, but they must not attack them. That's for two reasons. One, they need to know that God can provide everything they need. Look at 2 verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. There is no need to attack and plunder these nations because they've got everything they need already. Do you notice, even in the midst of judgment, even in their wilderness wanderings, God is providing for them, feeding them and nourishing them. And so they need to learn to trust God to give them everything they need. The second reason they mustn't attack is that they need to understand that God has given these lands to these specific groups. So verse 5 again, the end of verse 5, I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. And the same thing is said about Moab and Ammon later in the chapter. The Israelites must not attack because these lands don't belong to them. They're not part of the promised land. These lands are the inheritance of the nations. And that inheritance has been given to them by the Lord. You may remember that theme in Deuteronomy 32 last week. He sets the boundaries of all the nations. So they mustn't attack any of these nations. The second things we're explicitly told is that these nations have won their lands by displacing a mighty nation that lived there before them. So, verse 12. Verse 12. says, Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. So, the Esau, the Edomites, have defeated the Horites. Verse 10, Moab defeated the Emites, and there we're told that the Emites are strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Anakites are the guys who now live in the Promised Land. The Ammonites, bear with me, the Ammonites, verse 20 to 21, have defeated the Zamzamites. They're my favorite. And if we didn't get the message, Moses also tells us about another group, the Kaphtarites, who defeated people called the Avites in verse 23. Now, if we're reeling a bit from all those ites, just step back with me and see the big picture. God deliberately steers the people through three nations' territories and tells them the same thing about each one. One, this land is their God-given inheritance. Two, they got it by defeating a big, scary enemy who used to live in it. Do you see the, what God is doing? It's not a very subtle teaching method, actually. He's saying this, look, I'm the king of the whole world. Do you think you're the the only people I'm in charge of? I'm the one who gives every nation their inheritance, and I did it by helping them defeat strong, powerful enemies, some of which are as big or bigger than the guys you wouldn't face in the promised land. And these other nations, Moab and Edom and Ammon, they're not even my people. don't even like them very much. I have no covenant with them. They don't even know my name. So why are you afraid? Can you see that I can and will do for you, my own precious people, what I have done for these other nations? You see, he is slowly, patiently rebuilding their faith in him. In the midst of this first stage in the journey, something significant happens. In verse 14, we read this. Now, when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, oh, sorry, I've read the wrong bit. Verse 14, there we go. 
38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he completely eliminated them from the camp. As they passed from Moab into Ammon, the last of the former rebellious generation dies. Ironically, they're described there as the fighting men, despite the fact that that's exactly what they wouldn't do. But the judgment of God on that first generation is complete. And their children are now left, being led by Moses and Caleb and Joshua. And that brings us to the last two nations that God's people go through. And these are different. In chapter 2, 28, they come to Heshbon, the land of King Sion. And in 3, verse 1, to Bashan, the land of King Og. And this time, God does not want them to pass peacefully through their lands. Instead, Sion and Og are living in part of the promised land, part of the land beyond the Jordan River, which God intends to give to his people. So look at what happens, verse 30, chapter 2, verse 30. But Sion, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through, for the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women and children. We left no survivors. The same thing happens to King Og in Bashan. And I want to pause here and acknowledge that that is hard to read, isn't it? It's hard for us to read. This type of total destruction, which continues into the rest of the conquest of the promised land, has long caused distress and heartache for God's people, for Christians. How could God possibly sanction the killing of every man, woman, and child in every city and village in an entire region? We don't have massive time to go into this in detail now, but, but a few things to say. The first is this, this particular way of waging war is unique in Israel's history. It was not the way that Israel were taught to usually wage war. There are strict rules about that in Deuteronomy 20. This isn't a pattern for every battle and conflict. This is just the way they have to do things as they come into the promised land. The second thing to say is that the people they're waging war against are not gentle, sweet, innocent people. Later on in Deuteronomy, we'll see that these are a particularly wicked people who've been disobeying God in appalling ways and worshipping horrific idols for centuries. And so Israel is being used here as an instrument of God's judgment. This is not a pattern for war which Jews or Christians were ever meant to imitate because it was a specific judgment on a specific people for specific sins at a specific time. And God makes that very clear later. The third thing to say is that this destruction of the people who live in the promised land, so that the promised land is completely free of the enemies of God's people, is functioning in the Bible as a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God. The land of Canaan, while it belonged to the Israelites, was meant to be a holy place, completely devoted to God and free of any enmity towards God, any idolatry, anything that would be a source of temptation for God's people. And so it was a blueprint and a pattern for the new creation when all the evil in the world will be finally destroyed. 
We saw last week that Moses in Deuteronomy 32 foretold that final judgment, the deserved judgment on all nations for their idolatry and rejection of God's. Well, this is a taste of that final judgment pitched forward in history. It is the same judgment which any person or nation is going to face, including the Israelites themselves. And so if it shocks us and unsettles us, then it should. It should shock us out of our complacency, that everything is okay between us and God, that the world will just keep going on forever and we have nothing to fear. That's not true. Judgment is coming, and we see that in a miniature foretaste in the conquest of the promised land. If you want to chat more about that, come and talk to me afterwards. But what this amounts to in these chapters is the first test for this next generation of the Israelites. See, they've been patiently schooled in God's ability to defeat enemy nations and to give people the inheritance that he's marked out for them. And so the question is, will they obey God this time as their fathers refused to? Will they trust God and go up against his enemies to fight knowing that he is going with them? Well, the answer, for now, is yes. In these chapters, this new generation exhibits total obedience to Moses' instructions. They've learned the lessons God has taught them on the way. They respond with faith in action. Even without the seasoned fighting men, a younger generation with no experience of battle wins substantial victories against people who are bigger and stronger than them. And we see throughout that their trust is well-placed, that God is well able to do what he said he would do. He's able to do what he would said he would do in Kadesh and what he has done for all these other nations. In 2 verse 25, instead of the Israelites fearing the enemy, the enemy fears the Israelites. God puts the fear of the Israelites into them. See that? In 3 verse 5, we learn that the kind of high-walled cities that they had been so scared of are easily taken. And in 3 verse 11, we learn in passing that King Og was one of the Rephaites, one of those giants like the Anakites, a man so huge that his bed had to be made of reinforced iron and could fit about four normal-sized blokes in it. If you've ever been in a bed in a hotel room in America, that kind of thing, okay, just enorm- ridiculously enormous. God is easily able to conquer the greatest enemy. There is no need to fear. And that means the first tribes get settled in the land in what's called the Transjordan, the bit on the west of the Jordan. Uh, we won't read it, but in 3 verse 12 to 17, the lands are joyously renamed after the people who took them. And the tribes that are destined to live here make a commitment that they will not settle down until they've crossed the Jordan with their compatriots and help them defeat the enemies there and find rest in the land. And once again, they gladly obey. Faith, it would seem, obedient faith, faith in action has been rebuilt over this last 40 years. So we're left with a question. Will this be a turning point for this people? Have they learned their lesson for good? Will they now obey into perpetuity? Well, time and the rest of Deuteronomy will tell. Although, if you were here last week, as we looked at Deuteronomy 32, you might have an inkling as to the answer. And perhaps that's why there's a bittersweet ending to this recap. Because we learn finally that a good leader is required. In In chapter 3, verse 21 to 22, Moses hands over command of Israel to Joshua but the chapter ends with heartbreak for Moses. Moses, the great intercessor, the man who has pleaded on behalf of his people for over 40 years, finally prays a prayer for himself. 
Look at verse 23. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord. O sovereign Lord, you've begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hands. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead his people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So he stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. Moses desperately wants to be allowed into the promised land. He's been faithful throughout. He's always believed that God would be able to give it to the people. He's always believed that it's a good and fruitful land. The spies' report didn't freak him out. It just confirmed everything he already believed. And he wants to see it. He wants to live there even just for a few short days. He, he wants to see the fulfillment of God's promise. But God says no. Moses, verse 26, shares in the guilt of the people. And although Deuteronomy doesn't make a big deal of it, he actually has his own guilt to bear as well. You can read about that in Psalm 106, verse 33. And so the answer is no. He is allowed one last wistful gaze into the land, but he will not enter. Joshua will be the one who finishes the job. Or will he? See, this generation of people right now are trusting and obeying. And as Joshua leads the people into their first battle later in Jericho, everything seems to go to plan. The, the people of Jericho tremble in fear, and God brings the high walls of that particular city crashing down. But as the story continues, cracks begin to show. And so we leave the people in chapter 3 right on the edge of the promised land and teetering once again on the edge of obedience to God. But everything we've seen so far just makes us nervous about that, doesn't it? Will Joshua be the good leader they need? Will the people listen to Joshua any better than they listen to Moses? Will everything God has promised come to pass, or will it all come crashing down? That's the tension that Deuteronomy leaves us with, and that's where we'll have to leave it for today. But as we conclude, let's recap what we've seen in these chapters. I want to just show two things that I think we've seen all the way through. Well done for bearing with this, uh, this long section. First, we've seen the depths of sin. Although we've ended there in chapter 3 with some real obedience, yet we saw just how the stubbornness and arrogance of sinful human hearts can lead us to irrationally skew the evidence, reject what's good for us, refuse God's gift, and incur God's punishment over and over again. Israel's history is shameful, but it's not unique. Although we are living in a very different context, yet this is the story of all of our hearts, isn't it? Fearful, proud, doubtful, grumbling, more willing to listen to skeptical human beings than the powerful and gracious word of God. I know that temptation is there in my heart. I'm, I'm sure it's there in yours too. So why does the Bible give us this view of ourselves? Why are we shown the depths of our sin? the irrationality of it, the madness of it. Well, I think it's because the Bible wants to dethrone us. You see, we so often believe that we know best, don't we? 
that we're making decisions which are completely rational and sensible, and everyone I speak to thinks the same, except, you know, some of those crazy people who keep talking about the Bible. But the Bible obviously isn't going to work in this day and age. We often think that we would believe, we would take God a bit more seriously if only circumstances were different. If only becoming a Christian or living as a Christian weren't so scary. If only the results of trusting God wouldn't take me into difficult situations, then I'd do it. But this is too hard. Or, on the other hand, we think life is pretty easy and I don't really need God's help. I'll just do the right thing. I'll go to church. I'll say my prayers. I'll be outwardly sort of religious. And that's what God wants after all, isn't it? But if that's your attitude, whether it results in outright rebellion or outward conformity, God wants to dethrone you to help you see that your problem is the arrogance and stubbornness of your own heart and to cause you to humble yourself before him, to believe that you desperately need him to fight your battles for you, to trust that his ways are best and not yours, to listen to him and not the fears of your own heart and to respond with active repentance and faith. If that's you today, do come and grab me over coffee. I'd love to chat to you. We've seen the depths of sin and that's so that we can see the relentlessness of grace. At times in this talk, we've encountered God in his wrath and his anger, sending an entire generation to die in the wilderness, refusing to listen to the prayers of Israel and Moses, devoting Sion and Og to utter destruction. Our temptation when we read those is to wince and wish that he could be a bit more liberal. But it isn't God's judgment that ought to shock us. It's God's grace. Time and time again, he bears with his people, guides them, feeds them, cares for them. Even after they've repeatedly rejected him and rebelled against him and grumbled against him and refused to listen to his word. The covenant obligations are broken again and again. God could dissolve this covenant at any time and send them all out into the desert and just scatter them. And no one would be able to say that he was being at all unfair. And this continues to be the pattern. The people fail, and yet when that happened, God does not abandon his people. He keeps pursuing them with grace, patiently rebuilding their trust, showering his favor upon them. It's a pattern which will eventually lead to him proposing an entirely new covenant in which their sins will be decisively forgiven, and the people completely transformed so that they begin to listen and obey from the heart. A covenant, as Jeremiah said, which will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. It's a covenant where God will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And this pattern is a pattern which any follower of Jesus will recognize. As those who are members of this new covenant, we continue to sin, don't we? And we continue to need God's relentless grace. We still fall into habits of grumbling and rebellion, of arrogance and stubbornness, of outward conformity masking inward pride. And in Jesus, we have just that relentless grace. A few thousand years after Moses prayed to God for just a glimpse of the promised land, another Israelite knelt to pray. Like Moses, he was facing the judgment of God. Like Moses, he was bearing the guilt of all the people under his commands. Like Moses, I suspect he knew what the answer to his prayer would be. 
And yet he poured out to his heart to God, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that if it were possible that he would not face the wrath of God, the final judgment of God that would be poured out on him as he died on a Roman cross. And like Moses, he accepted the will of God. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done, when he got no for an answer. But unlike Moses, he had no guilt of his own to bear. Unlike Joshua, he never wavered in his obedience to God. Unlike the Israelites, he never listened to fears. He never grumbled. He was never arrogant. He always trusted. He always obeyed. And so when Jesus suffered under the judgment of God, when he was devoted to destruction, just like Sion and Og were, he did not stay dead. He rose again, leading a people with him, a people who would be counted righteous because of Jesus' righteousness, a people who would no longer suffer God's judgment because Jesus had taken it all for them, a people who could could be sure of a welcome into the true Holy Land, into God's new creation, because Jesus had ascended there already and defeated every enemy. Sin, death, Satan, these are no matches for the power of Jesus. And so we can listen to him, we can trust him, and we can obey him without fear. See, if we trust in Jesus, our story will not fundamentally be the same as it ever was. Our mistakes can be covered, the depths of our sin washed as white as snow, and our future in the new creation utterly secure, all because of the relentless grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning through your words. Thank you for challenging us and exposing our hearts. We acknowledge that we are not so very different to these Israelites, that we have arrogance and stubbornness in our hearts, that we often refuse to obey you because we think we know best, or we obey obey you in an outward show that comes from an arrogant heart. Father, thank you for your relentless grace to us. Thank you for patiently rebuilding our trust in you. And thank you most of all for Jesus. Thank you that he is the true Israelite who always kept covenant with you. Thank you that he is the true Moses who never disobeyed and always intercedes for us. Thank you that he is the true Joshua who can lead us into the promised land, into the new creation. Thank you that he has done it all. And we're so grateful for him. Please help us to trust him, to listen to him, and to obey him without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.